are Locked On 49ers, your daily San Francisco 49ers podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome to Locked On 49ers, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Brian Peacock here with you once again, Thursday edition of the show. My guest today is John Ledyard of Locked On NFL Draft and the Draft Network. He had his plan for fixing the 49ers at thedraftnetwork.com, so we're going to get into some of that stuff, a look at some of the players the 49ers currently have, what they could do this offseason, and some players in the draft that could really uh, help them out as they go forward into a 2019 and beyond. And I had such a good time talking with John. We went a little bit long, so it's going to be a two-parter. We're going to get to uh, most of that conversation today, finish it up for tomorrow's episode, along with my Fan Friday mailbag. So keep those mailbag questions coming on Twitter at BD Peacock or via email, LockedOn49ers at gmail.com. And with that, let's get to part one. My guest today is John Ledyard. You know him, the hardest working man, I think, in the NFL Draft game, you can find him on Twitter at Ledyard NFL Draft. Of course, the co-host of Locked On NFL Draft and the new Draft Network, which was is a fantastic resource for fans of football in the NFL Draft, and it's an awesome startup that's happened this year. If you haven't checked out the Draft Network, you got to go to thedraftnetwork.com and see everything that that whole crew is doing. Fantastic work! So, John, thank you very much for giving me the time and uh, being on the show. Absolutely, Brian. Thanks so much for having me, man. I appreciate it. One of the reasons I wanted to have you on is you recently made a post at the Draft Network talking about fixing the San Francisco 49ers and uh, laying out a 2019 offseason plan. And there was a lot of things that matched up with what uh, I had done a, a five point plan to fixing the 49ers early on this earlier on the season, maybe a month ago on Locked On 49ers and uh, a lot of crossover from that with what you had in your article and some things that were a little bit different. I want to talk about some of these things. And the first thing I want to talk about actually is more about the current 49ers. And I think one of the things that I took away from this article, and I think that you're kind of trying to tell 49ers fans is, okay, take a couple steps away from the ledge. Maybe this 49ers team at full health right now is not a two-win roster. Oh, for sure it's not. Yeah, I mean, this is definitely a better team uh, than what we're currently seeing, uh, just rash of injuries, and when you lose your starting quarterback in the NFL, it's just a reality. Like a lot, I mean, everything else kind of goes with it usually. So uh, he's a difference maker. Jimmy Garoppolo is a difference maker. I think um, really sucks for him because he was finally get a chance to show that for a full season, and then that happens, obviously. But yeah, the 49ers are talented. Are they a playoff team this year? Even if people are healthy, I don't think so. No. But are they, you know, picking number one overall? No. So um, I think that uh, they're moving in the right direction. I get fans' frustration because this is supposed to be the year you at least saw a turnaround start to happen. They're a couple pieces away. And obviously the Reuben Foster stuff coupled with Solomon Thomas's you know, lack of development isn't helping matters uh, on that front. But this year's class looks pretty good. I think they're getting de- some definite strong. I mean, I think McGlinchey and Fred Warner and I think are both studs and I think Dante Pettis is going to be a really, really good player for them. You know, obviously George Kittle making a huge impact. And so uh, it's an exciting class still. looks like this, this, this latest class. And if you get Kittle at least from the last class, and I know Solomon Thomas is going to improve in year three, uh, he will. It may not ever be the number three overall pick worthy, but uh, he's going to improve and make more of an impact, especially if you get better players on the, at the other edge rusher spot. I think that's imperative. So, 
yeah, this could end up being a really good thing for the 49ers in the long run. But right now, I get it. It's frustrating for Van. One of the crazy things about Jimmy Garoppolo, too, and I think the biggest downer there, because he still he wasn't a finished product. And he still, for being in the NFL for four or five years now, doesn't have a lot of experience. He hasn't thrown a lot of passes. And what's insane, actually, is that C.J. Beathard has thrown more NFL passes than Jimmy Garoppolo. And so he still has that last bit of development, and I thought we were going to see it this year. And and he he came in so strong at the end of 2017 and in 2018. It didn't look as good, but you know I think in Kyle Shanahan's offense, it's one of those things where maybe you take some dips, and then all of a sudden you have this explosion like we saw with the Atlanta offense. So hopefully for the 49ers, that could be next year where it really takes off, maybe add a few more pieces. Um, but yeah, quarterback's big, and obviously you lose your starting quarterback, and that just changed the whole complexion of the 49ers season. Uh, you mentioned Solomon Thomas right there. I want to ask you about what your evaluation of Solomon Thomas was coming into the 2017 draft, because I see a guy, he played three, four defensive end in college, and he's kind of that guy in, in the 49ers talked about when they drafted him. We have a big end here. He's going to play the Michael Bennett role, and Michael Bennett in Seattle was a, a rundown defender as a defensive end, but would move inside and rush the passer from inside. The 49ers, until last week, hadn't really allowed Solomon Thomas to do that very much. And so what was your thoughts on him as a prospect coming out of the draft, and why do you like him to still uh, have that, you know, what, what kind of talent does he have to develop still to be maybe not number three overall worthy, but a very good NFL player? Yeah, I mean, I look at the process behind drafting Solomon Thomas, and it's hard to hate it. I mean, everybody in the NFL loves Solomon Thomas coming out. If Fort Niners had taken him, I mean, he'd have gone off the board one of the next couple of picks. You know, this would have happened anywhere, I think, honestly, because you look at Solomon Thomas, athleticism off the charts, size was great. Uh, for the position, uh, played every snap like it was his last, just full-bore effort every play, high-character guy, extremely smart, extremely hardworking, um, just still pumped up on game days, but practice hard too, coaches raved about him, you know, it just absolutely everything you want to see in a top prospect he had. Production, amazing tape in huge games, um, the UNC game is still one of the best games I've ever seen for a just absolutely dominated that entire game. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you looked at it, it's not translated to the field for one really big reason, I think. Moving from the interior, where he played 85, I think, percent of his snaps at Stanford, coming from the interior, to uh, then the outside in San Francisco is a transition, and it takes time. It is totally different for your body to be no longer rushing on this linear path, but now have to be able to turn a corner, get your hips and your feet and everything in line with the pocket, uh, using your hands really in a different way, attacking a different part of of your opponent, a different ha- aspect of your opponent, establishing more of a half-man relationship and not necessarily converting as much speed to power. It just is different, and it takes time. And every player is a little bit different in their developmental curve. So you know, I kind of said from the beginning, I Solomon Thomas was a top-ten player for me, but I kind of said, you're taking a risk if you draft Solomon Thomas. There's no doubt. But there's just no reason in the world to bet against this guy. You look at everything on paper, everything that he's done on tape, you know, it's a transition. It's a tough transition. Not a lot of players go from interior defensive line to the edge. Some go the other way, but it doesn't happen a whole lot. So, uh, you know, to me it was like, okay, we can, we can try this, and it's going to be a little bit risky, but it just you just felt like it was going to pay off with him. You know, everything was kind of in place for him to be this high-ceiling developmental guy. So, I think he'll be better in year three. I think the stuff off the field has had a big impact with him. Um, the stuff with his sister and everything like, you know, tragedy like that. And he's been so open and honest kind of about how 
difficult that's been for him. And so I just think that has a lot to do with this, to be honest. Um, I, I do. And I think that hopefully that, that, that as that time moves on and, you know, I think next season um, you could see a bit of a different player for sure. Uh, and not to say that he's not trying and I think he is, but you know, when you have to really study your craft the way you'll have to, to make that transition, I think all those things, all those aspects come into play and really matter in, in terms of making that switch. So I think you're going to see better from Solomon Thomas every year. I think getting more out of him has to be a top priority. You know, this guy was a top five pick. You, you can't like move on or cut his snaps or anything. You gotta, you gotta play this guy. And, and it's not like he's a liability on the field. Either. Like he's not a bad run defender. He's a, he's a good run defender. I mean, I've seen him play the run really well. PFF grades him against the run really well. You know, he, he knows what he's doing there. You know, he, he can really make an impact there, but nobody cares about that. If you don't get, if you don't get sack production in today's <laughs> NFL, it doesn't matter. And I get it. It's, it's right. It's accurate. It's fair especially as a top-five pick. So he's got to be on the field for those kind of downs, and he's got to make an impact there. I think if they keep the number one spot, they get Nick Bosa on here, I think you'll see things change for him. I think you'll see that light come on a little bit for him. I think those guys hopefully pushing each other a little bit, working a little bit. But Bosa also, you know, he's just a more well-rounded edge defender than Solomon Thomas is. So he's going to be able, despite being a rookie, he'll be able to teach and help some things. There's nobody on the roster right now that can do this kind of thing. There's nobody is is showing him how to rush from the edge and things like that. So I think that will help a lot. You know, if you ask players, you know, I just know from being in Pittsburgh, you know, what's made the biggest difference for them, you know, it wasn't the coaches. It was James Harrison being here and being able to show how to rush the passer. And obviously Bosa doesn't have that level of experience, but if you watch him, I mean, he is just a technician, you know, so he's a wizard in terms of that type of stuff. And I think that he can help Solomon Thomas. And they're going to be very similarly sized prospects I think as well, and probably test somewhat similar. So I think that can be a help to him. Even just his presence on the field will be a help to him. Um, but yeah, that's the reality. The reality is the 49ers have to find ways to make things easier for Solomon Thomas. If that means moving him inside on long and late downs, you move him inside, you get him some confidence, you get him some rushes inside. I agree with that. I don't think he can be an every down player on the inside um, like he was at Stanford because even on Stan- in the Stanford tape, he got pushed around a good bit on the inside in the run game, double teams. You know, it was just it was really tough for him uh, to play that role at his size. So uh, I think you're going to see a better player next year. Uh, I don't know whether it's going to ever be the number three overall type of player. Yeah, and you think about the process, and I think it's interesting you bring up that point. And uh, he was, you know, 275 pounds, ran in the four sixes, which is kind of crazy. So th- there was a lot there yeah. to like about Solomon Thomas, and it's easy to forget that. Uh, we got to talk more about Solomon Thomas here. I have one more note about him, and of course, you brought up Nick Bosa, which is a major piece to this thing turning around for the 49ers in your piece. So more on that after this. This episode is brought to you by Action Heat. Action Heat makes the world's best battery-heated clothing heat on demand at the touch of a button. Control your environment with Action Heat. If you're like me, you like to go maybe to Lake Tahoe in the wintertime, do a little skiing, play around in the snow a little bit. That's the first thing I thought of with Action Heat, which is clothing engineered to safely and efficiently deliver heat via Heating panels, similar to a heated car seat that can reach temperatures of 135 degrees and are powered by rechargeable 5-volt lithium-ion batteries that last up to 12 hours on each charge. And Action Heat batteries can also be used to recharge your phone or any other gadget while you're wearing them. You're sitting at the top of the mountain and you're thinking, oh, i got to take a photo of this beautiful, picturesque environment before I ski down the hill. And you're like, ah, my phone's out of batteries. Well, you can even charge that up while you're staying warm with 
Action Heat. It's perfect for any friend or family on a holiday gift list. Great for anyone who works outdoors or just hates being cold. And I think my wife would definitely enjoy some Action Heat because she absolutely cannot stand being cold. I'm sure you know somebody like that. Action Heat clothing provides toasty warmth and comfort for your whole body, including heated jackets, socks, gloves, hats, and even undergarments. Action Heat is available in men's and women's great new styles added for this winter and fits everyone's budget starting at just $39.99. And of course, we've got a special deal for our listeners. Save 20% off your entire order. Just go to actionheat.com slash locked on to check out everything Action Heat has to offer. That's actionheat.com slash locked on, or just use coupon code locked on at checkout to save 20%. Stay toasty warm while you enjoy all your outdoor activities this winter with Locked On 49ers newest sponsor, Action Heat. All right, we talked about Salma Thomas and Nick Bosa, how there are some similarities with the height, weight, speed there. Most likely, we still have to wait to see how all these prospects actually work out and look at the combine. And one thing that is, to me, instantly different on tape with those two guys is even if they're both in that, you know, as prospects, 270 range and run maybe four, six, nine or something like that. Nick Bosa can play like with his fingertips dragging the ground and with body lean and flexibility and turn the corner. And he's already such a technician at a young age. Um, Solomon Thomas coming out of college was, was just looked a lot more stiff and he was powerful and, and powerfully built, but very tightly wound and he didn't show that flexibility, which is why I like him rushing from the inside. But Bosa's outside guy all day. Uh, t- talk a little bit more about Nick Bosa and what you see in him as a prospect. What do you expect him to put up at the combine? Because Joey Bosa was maybe just a little bit disappointing. The size was great, but I, I think he ran like four eight five or something that didn't really uh, excite people as much. And there was some talk about him falling down the board, even though he was the number one guy all offseason like Nick Bosa is. Yeah, the Joey Bosa hate for the combine was really just bizarre kind of it was completely overrated in a lot of ways like okay so he didn't run a fast 40 and he didn't like have a great vertical jump but i mean this dude his three cone was six eight nine that puts him in the 93rd percentile among edge defenders his 20 yard shuttle was four two one that's like db type times broad jump lower body explosiveness was 120 inches 77th percentile so this guy was explosive and the three-cone uh, really denotes uh, bendiness and flexibility in hips. And he was extremely bendy. Um, and that's not even really how he's won to the prospect, but it denotes flexibility in the lower half, flexibility in the ankles, things like that, uh, to be able to turn tight corners. And you know he's been able to do that with power and with speed and bend in the NFL. So uh, you, I'm really, honestly, looking back, we overrated the 40 probably with Joey Bosa. Yeah. Because the 40 doesn't really matter that much for edge defenders. So, you know, as long as everything else was great, and he improved his 10-yard split a ton uh, at, the, at his pro day, too. So there was a lot of other stuff to get excited about with him um, at that combine. I think Nick Bosa is even going to test even better and even is even maybe a little bit more athletic uh, than Joey Bosa. Um, Bosa probably – or Joey was probably better with his hands. Nick is still really good in that regard, though. Joey's just maybe the best. I've seen coming out of college in terms of his hands and his pass rush plan and all that kind of stuff. With Solomon Thomas, the issue was this. He had the bendiness when you saw the testing numbers, but you never had to see him turn those corners in college because he really wasn't on the edge ever. So it became a really tough evaluation where it was basically like, that was my big question with Solomon Thomas. 
What was he bendy? Was he flexible? Could he turn those corners? How was he going to look in the agilities? As quick change of direction, we have to get low to the ground, explode back out in the other direction, like the 20-yard shuttle or the three-cone where you're turning the owl and all that kind of stuff. And it's all about flexibility and turning tight corners. That denotes really well to those two things. He went out and tested in the 88th percentile in the three-cone and the 81st in the 20-yard shuttle while being in the 94th percentile in the broad jump, the 74th in the, ver- in the 83rd, in the 40-yard dash. So given this, what you knew, Solomon Thomas would be a top-five pick every single year. And if this Solomon Thomas still doesn't live up to expectations and another guy with his exact profile and exact tape comes along, the NFL is going to pick him top five because sometimes a good process still leads to a bad result. I still think Solomon Thomas taking him in the top five made sense. It doesn't always work out. Like, you know, it doesn't always live up to expectations, but everything about his profile screamed that he was worth taking that type of risk, that he had that type of upside. So there's interesting aspects to his evaluation and how we review it. Um, you know, as long as you knew what you were getting into getting in, going in. And I don't know how 49ers have developed him. I look at the Steelers, for example. They love to take high athletic guys like T.J. Watt and Bud Dupree and stuff like that, but they don't teach them how to win 1v1 as pass rushers. They don't spend hardly any time on pass rush at all in practice, in camp, nothing. Uh, so it's really up to these guys to get individual training outside of that in the offseason. But then by the time camp goes, they get through mini camp and all that kind of stuff, and they take their July vacation and they come back, a lot of that muscle memory stuff is kind of gone a little bit. So it, it is tricky when you're not teaching and developing guys there. I don't know. Maybe San Francisco's doing that. Maybe they're not. Maybe there's things they can be doing to develop him better. Maybe if he laid another spot, he'd be developing more. I really don't know. But all I know is the process behind drafting someone with Solomon Thomas's profile is a good one. You want to take players like Solomon Thomas in the draft. doesn't mean 100% of those guys will work out. The draft is a crapshoot. These are the guys you bet on. So that 2017 49ers draft, there's more stuff, obviously, looming there and talking about process with Reuben Foster. I want to touch on that in a second, but one more quick question about Nick Bosa. Let's say the 49ers go into free agency, and one of the biggest things about the 49ers having that number one pick in the draft is they would know who's there, who they like, who they can take going into free agency so you don't have to overpay for an edge guy if that's your number one need for the 49ers, and I think it is. Then you know, okay, we, we're going to draft Nick Bosa number one. We don't have to overpay for a guy. But if there's some question about that, maybe they they do draft a weak side or they do sign a weak side defensive end to start, say Brandon Graham or, or you know whoever uh, is out there and available this off season that actually hits free agency because edge guys just don't. Um, can Nick Bosa maybe stand up a little bit like his brother has as an outside linebacker in a three four? I think he can. Uh... You know, to really the only difference is there's two differences with guys who stand up and guys who put their hand down. Uh, usually it's they stand up if their scheme has them drop into coverage more often. And why in the world you'd ever be dropping Nick Bosa into coverage, I don't know. But the Chiefs did it all year last year with Justin Houston. Uh, I've done it some this year. So, I mean, I, I guess it's a possibility. I, we'll see how he tests uh, and probably maybe he'll go through some of those drills too. Uh, you'll see what he looks like there. You know, that's really all we have to go off of because – he obviously didn't drop any coverage at Ohio State at all. Um, so that's one reason. The only other thing to worry about really with that is the first step. Is his first step going to look worse or going to take time to adjust into a two-point stance? Um, you know, that would be the other thing that you have to look at. And, again, since he didn't play in a two-point stance at Ohio State, it's hard to, to say without having seen it. Um, you know, some guys are – like I was watching Montez Sweat today, uh, you know, the Mississippi State defensive end. He's just way more explosive out of a three-point stance. He is out of a two-point stance, and 
you know, some guys are in a two-point stance and they don't get the same explosiveness and they need things tweaked. So he would have to learn a new stance, which could hurt his first step. You know, that would be the, that would be the only other concern. Other than that, it's basically the same role. I mean, you know, if a guy struggles with pad level, you'd probably want him in a three-point stance, but that's not really a concern for Nick Bosa. So, you know, that would be the two things to really look at. Is it possible? It might be possible, but I'm a big, if it ain't broke, don't fix it guy. And so, <laughs> I, you know, my, my big thing is keep him in a three-point stance. He's obviously amazing at it. Let him get after the quarterback. Don't complicate things really. And I think even in some ways, you know, Denver's scheme has complicated things in some ways for Bradley Chubb. He's working from a two-point stance all the time. You know, he was at his best at a three-point stance at NC State. He's dropping into coverage there. You know, it's just not who he's best. And he still has nine sacks. A lot of them are effort hustle sacks if you've watched this year. You know, but I think in some ways teams do that sometimes, and I just really don't like it. I know that, you know, they're trying to – they already had a scheme in place there, and it works for Vaughn. And so, you know, there's there's room between the lines there too. But uh, as far as the 49ers go, I mean, if you're drafting a guy like Nick Bosa, he's got to be playing with his hand down and get out to the quarterback every snap. Otherwise, I think you're misusing him. John Ledyard of the Draft Network and Locked On NFL Draft joining me on today's program. More with him after this. One thing I forgot I wanted to ask you about, we were talking about process earlier. You're being as plugged in as you are with the NFL Draft. Was was there any more whispers and stuff we didn't know? Like maybe more signs that it was going to go down a bad path than you know the, the combine stuff with Reuben Foster? No, not like a path like this, no. Um, and the whole situation is really bizarre. Um, you know, I mean, we could probably talk about this for a whole podcast, yeah. to be honest. <laughs> but, I mean, you have a guy who has maturity concerns, everybody says is a good guy, obviously has some immature moments, can have somewhat of a temper uh, was kind of the, what it was said. But, um, you know, nothing violent. You know, I never heard anything violent or anything like that. Um, you know, I mean – Almost everybody on that Alabama team was in trouble, and a lot of it's not, not even public now. I mean, I, I heard a lot of things during draft process. I was like, what in the world? It seemed like his biggest issues were just making dumb decisions, like the gun thing, you know, just dumb stuff, you know, like stuff he just shouldn't be doing, like careless stuff. And certainly that's troubling as an organization. I'm not going to say it isn't, but, you know, the weed and all that stuff, you know, that's all, you know, right to be concerned for sure. But domestic violence is another deem. I mean, you're not, you know, we're talking about something totally different. Uh, when we talk about that stuff, if if weed and immaturity concerns were all, the only concerns, they made the right decision draft them at the, you know, when they did, even if it doesn't work out, they made the right decision. That's all that we knew was the case. And we had some combine incident that wasn't physical that got him kicked out of the comp. We still don't know. I've never seen or never heard from all the people I talked to what the specifics of that situation were. Um, I don't know. Um, I don't. I can even speculate as to whose fault it was or what happened. Obviously, there was stuff that needed to be vetted there, but it's a far cry from anything there to what we're dealing with today. You look at the first incident. It was, she obviously got up in court and said that she lied. I have no idea what happens in the second incident. Um, I know what I've heard about the incident. I, you know, I certainly would not be taking to Twitter and condemning Reuben Foster the way that tons of other people are. The 49ers didn't cut him because of domestic violence. They cut him because he put himself in another bad situation to put everything else in a bad light again and made another, whether it was domestic violence or not, where, you know, it could be way worse than that, obviously, with domestic violence. But at the very least, he put himself in another poor situation that reflected poorly on the team with a person that he knew, he knew, had said that she wanted to destroy his life. Yeah. 
He knew that. So at the team that was, was why they cut him. That was why they moved on from him. It wasn't because they believe he was guilty of domestic violence. That and Cal Shannon made that incredibly clear. I thought, uh, and mm-hmm. people yeah, he just kind of hear what they want to hear. I am obviously completely like. I mean, I'm so against. I mean, not everybody's against domestic violence that that has any type of a soul. That should go without saying. Unfortunately, there's so many keyboard warriors out there that kind of want to come at everybody who says anything in defense of anything. I'm not defending Ruben Foster. I'm just saying this late, this woman got up on the stand in the courtroom and she said that she lied and made up everything. And, it, and there was no evidence. So, I mean, it was just very compelling that, that she obviously had lied. And now she's saying something again and everybody's acting like it's a, you know, a lock that he committed to us. I don't know. I don't know what happened in the situation. Obviously, like, Maybe both parties here need significant help, but did domestic violence happen? I have no idea, and I'm certainly not going to rush down the path of saying that it absolutely did when you have a person who just lied about it and admitted it in court a couple months ago. You know, I mean, I just can't believe the willingness people have to to kind of rush and condemn him over this. Now, if he did it, absolutely go to town. You know, absolutely, but we can wait, right? We can we can wait and see how this process plays out. I just don't I, the, the hastiness. You know, to just kind of condemn him, especially in light of what just happened a couple months ago with the same person, it really has blown my mind. Um, you know, I know that that's some people's agenda, regardless of any, of anything else, including the facts. And I get that. And obviously, it's a serious situation that needs to be dealt with. So, but this is not just every other situation. I mean, when you think about it in context of what just happened a couple months ago with Reuben Foster and the same woman, so there's a lot more going on here. We definitely need to see what how the courts, you know. Um, figure this thing out and everything. So I'm not even going to say the 49ers drafted a domestic violence because we don't know that that's the issue at all. Based on everything we know, he was immature. He continued to make immature decisions. They felt like it was best and it was time to move on. I completely agree with that decision. I also don't think they've handled any part of this poorly. I think they've handled it very well. Uh, I think that they tried to help him. I think that was clear. Uh, They went into detail about that. They've been transparent with the media. They've talked about their process. They're not trying to hide anything. Um, they were clear all along that if something else came up, anything really came up, they were going to move on from it. They did it. Um, I think they handled it as well as an organization could possibly handle it. Um, I think that it was right to move on. It was time to move on regardless of whether this happened or not. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know whether it happened or not. I, I look forward to the legal process playing out. I think Washington obviously claiming him, and they look forward to that playing out. Um, and I just think everybody should chill and relax and wait for that to happen uh, before we rush to judgment. It's such a crazy situation. He obviously has to make better decisions, and that's obvious. I mean, who gets arrested at the team hotel? I've never heard of that. So um, they had to let him go. I understand it, and who knows what actually went down there, and we'll find out. And uh, that that couple, those those two people involved definitely need to figure something (laughs) out and need some help, and Ruben just making bad decisions forced the 49ers' hands. So I get it from all angles on that. Mm -hmm. Um, And by the way, if – 49ers fans out there looking at free agency, looking at Frank Clark. Don't don't look at Frank Clark because uh, he's got that yeah. domestic violence stuff in his right. past. 49ers are not going to sniff that. So, uh, yeah, you can forget that one. Thanks again to John for joining me on the program. You can find him on Twitter at Ledyard NFL Draft. Of course, subscribe to Locked On NFL Draft podcast right here on the Locked On Podcast Network and go check out the Draft Network Com. Tomorrow we'll get into part two of my conversation with John and then dip into the Locked On 49ers mailbag. So keep those mailbag questions coming at BD Peacock on Twitter or LockedOn49ers at gmail.com. Talk to you tomorrow right here on Locked On 49ers.